The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop invoking your long pointer and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 315 with guest Brian Noyes, recorded live Saturday, January 5th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, the NRTV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, providing the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who used noise reduction on Brian's audio track, and now he's only three feet tall, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lawrence. Thanks, everybody. And welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin here, as I always am. Twice a week for your listening pleasure with my friend, my cohort, Richard Campbell. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm well today. Thank you. Yeah, you're well every day. Um, not necessarily. Better on some. Today's a good day. That's good. Because, you know, you're here. I enjoy talking to you. Brian Noyes is coming up. Lawrence wrote a good joke. You know, everything's just working. <laughs> working, yeah, it's for. <laughs> everything's working. And we got the busy conference season coming up here. Looks like we're both going to be at Mix. We're both going to be at Mix. Yep. We're both going to be at Tech Ed. Yep. Oh, my God. Should we really rattle them off? We've got Dev Teach in Toronto. Yes. And we're going to be there together. Yeah. We've got... Uh, uh, the Raleigh Code Camp this weekend. That's right. The Raleigh Code Camp <laughs> It's this already weekend. sold out. I didn't even want to say anything. But... And I, normally, I don't do Code Camps because I just don't have the time to do it. But it was uh, it was just happened to be a time where the schedule lightened up a little bit. Yeah. And we had a way to make it work. So, we did. Plus, all our friends are going to be there. And that should be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. And uh, then we've got some real... Conf- the conference season starts early. And it's just heinous so tech ed we're probably going to go all over the world with tech ed this year yep and uh i'm not sure if we've got them all nailed down but you want to rattle off some of these countries we're going to uh, bangkok uh no it's going to be kuala lumpur it is going to be kl it's going to be kl awesome going to be australia uh sydney this year australia new zealand yeah new zealand will be auckland south africa south africa durban looks like it's going to be durban we still, some of these are not quite set yet. Right. So we're okay. still trying to sort all that out. Barcelona, once Barcelona. again. Barcelona is going to happen. Yep. And then, of course, Dev Connections. Uh, Connections Orlando in the spring. In the spring and in the fall as fall well. Fall in Las Vegas. And they're not going to conflict. I hope. We hope. <laughs> again. <laughs> and don't forget, and we now got the week set up for SDC Netherlands. And first week of October. The next Immediately week. followed by. Yeah. Dev Reach Bulgaria. Dev Reach Bulgaria. So yes, sir. Back to back. Another chance to set our shashlik on fire in public. Very nice. And uh, and if I get my way, we're going to take a little trip across Bulgaria that that week. Too. Yeah, you want to go to Bucharest? Well, you know, I've on a tour of all Eastern European nations. I got to Lithuania this year, mm-hmm. and of course Bulgaria. We've been to a number of times. So I figured if we could sneak up to Romania. Mm-hmm. While we were visiting Bulgaria, that would be good. That'd be cool. Yeah, I really want to do that. I have a couple of friends in Romania. Maybe we could look them up. We'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll figure it out. But anyway, let's get right into Better Know Framework. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what do you got for me? 
Uh, just never tickles, never ceases to stop tickling me. <laughs> never ceases to stop. I think I invented some redundancy there. Yes. Uh, so today's uh, interface is iFormatable. Oh. iFormatable. You know when you have an object, Richard, and two string just doesn't cut it? You know, with two string, you want to just implement the normal two-string, or maybe you've got a, a two-string, but you want some options. You want to pass some parameters. You want some formatting capability, like the formatting in strings in .NET. So you want to basically implement this interface, and you get an overload to two-string, which gives you a, a format string that you can pass in and an iFormat provider. Nice. Yeah, so that you can return a string representation of your object with formatting. Very simple, very straight ahead. System.i formatable. Not i formidable, but i formatable. It is quite formidable, yes. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm good. I got an email for you. All right. And this one's from John Donnellan. It's, the subject's great. Sundry feedback on a Sunday. Hi, Richard and Carl. It's Sunday night. The kids are in bed. I've just finished a chunk of code. And for the first time in a good while, I find myself at a loose end. Finally, I might have a few minutes to say again, thank you for your shows and give some random feedback. The biggest giggle of 2007, the show with Richard as a guest was very good and may have been the funniest show of the year. But the single biggest laugh for me was episode 245, Sharp Develop with Christopher Wheel. I had a giggle fit while walking in the street. Okay, I've probably been on one international conference call too many, which is why I recognize that special noise humor makes as it dies in transit. <laughs> and he doesn't actually reference the joke. He references the time index. So I guess I'll have to go back and listen to find out what he thought was so, so funny. It's at yeah. minute 24 on the show. Okay. Uh, he has a program suggestion. I'm sure you're not short of ideas for shows, but I have a suggestion. I'd love to hear something about singularity or cosmos. I've heard whispers about singularity for a while, but I've only heard about cosmos last week. Seems like they could add a whole new dimension to .NET. I have no idea what you're talking about, but soon I will know, and we will make a show. On DNR TV podcast, if I heard right, you've relented and said you will cast the DNR TV shows. Great. One thought, have you considered doing an audio-only podcast of the show? Yep. Yes, we have. And uh, not only that, but I have a 32-gig iPod Touch coming my way ah. so that I can test out what everybody keeps saying, that the iPod Touch is a really good platform for watching DNR TV. I will test it myself, and if it looks good, we will, uh, you know, maybe try to make something that's custom fit for it, but I can't guarantee anything. Right. In the meantime... In the meantime, you should just be able to play the WMVs on the iPod Touch. Yeah, if you play a WMV on a player, an audio player, it will play. The other thing we're going to do with DNR TV is remove the zip. Um, right now, everything's in a zip file. And the reason we did that, and I've said this before, is that in the earlier days of DNR TV, we had more than one file linked together because a different codecs needed to be used to create the different types of files. We had the, the show itself, and then we had ads, and the ads were always bigger. We didn't want to bloat the whole thing, so we zipped them all together with a playlist. But since then, we figured out how to do it with a single WMV, and it looks really good. So we're going to uh, just, you know, uh, change the feed to s support the WMV, and then you'll be able to get it with iTunes and blah, 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 and everybody will have fun. So awesome. that's coming up. One more point. How to improve DNR TV. Okay. And speaking of DNR TV, I do have one gripe. Do you have any idea how annoying it is to have windows on my screen that I can't control? <laughs> I am an administrator. <laughs> there is no screen. It. Remote desktop, VNC, Telnet, remote Kia VM, X, virtual machine on my computer, which does not bend to my will. But Yikes. this ruddy Camtasia thing just ignores me. Could you please select a screencast package that allows users to reach across the internet and back in time so that we can scroll across <laughs> and read the text and, more importantly, play with some of those interesting apps on Carl's machine? <laughs> Even better, could you allow the audio so we can argue with the guests? This would be particularly useful when we have the benefit of two years of hindsight. Thanks for the great shows, John Donnellan. I just don't know what to say to that, John. <laughs> I know exactly what he means. I've been watching a DNR TV and gone and clicked on the window. Yeah. I mean, because it's a window. <laughs> it looks so real, doesn't it? It does. <laughs>
Thanks, John. Uh, We'll fire you a mug. And if you have any questions, any ideas, any thoughts, any complaints, any flames, anything like that, send us an email, .netrocks at franklins.net. And with that, uh, Richard, let's uh, welcome back to the show an old regular of ours um, and a good friend, Brian Noyes. Brian is an architect with iDesign, the Microsoft Regional Director for the Mid-Atlantic Region, and a Connected Systems MVP. Uh, he is the author of Developing Applications with Windows Workflow Foundation, Smart Client Deployment with ClickOnce, and Data Binding with Windows Forms 2.0, as well as numerous articles and developer publications. He's a frequent speaker at conferences internationally, including Microsoft TechEd, Dev Connections, VS Live, DevTeach, DevReach, and others. Welcome back, Brian. Thanks. Blah, blah, blah. Those always sound so short when you write them, and then when you got to hear them, you're just like, oh, my God, why did I say all that crap? That's not a long one either. That's not Boy, bad. I, you know, we get, if you actually put everything down that we've done right. independently, all three of us, I admit, it's a long story. Remember, uh, the when, audience would be asleep. Yeah. yeah. Remember when Les Pinter was on the show and he, we asked him for a bio and he sent us a story. Yeah. He said a novel. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, I'm not putting that on the website. Let's trim that down a little less. But it was all interesting. Of it course. was very interesting. No doubt about it. Yeah. Just, we've been busy. We have yep. been. And, you know, you, you mentioned in your bio here that you're a connected systems MVP, but now I guess the MVP program is changing a little bit so no longer are you limited to one technology now you can be an mvp and specialize in different products yeah actually and and i'm a connected systems mvp as of about a few days ago because i was previously a solutions architect mvp and they retired that category because basically it was too ambiguous Hmm. and actually before that i was an asp.net mvp which i moved out of because i wasn't doing that much asp.net stuff anymore and it actually might just sound like a title to the listener you know the big deal so what so what your title changes but what that does is it gives us access to the different teams so when we're an mvp for multiple products we can actually intercommunicate between these teams and hopefully you know bring them closer together which is a really good thing yeah, and in theory, the you know the specific product team that aligns as as closely as possible to whatever your category is is the one that will pay you the most heed. But I think it's more just you know the the product teams develop their own relationships sure. with with outsiders that well, uh, give good, good if, feedback. What's great though is if you have a problem that spans you know that exists between two different products, then they each mm-hmm. have to sort of focus on the same problem. It's a good way to to be able to communicate. Anyway, I think so, it would be really interesting to see what dual discipline MVPs do to Microsoft because you're exactly right. They're going to be able to leverage the two, ultimately make the product better. I, that's what I think. I think it's a really good step for them. And, you know, it's not bad for us to add a few more products to our MVP resume line. Well, I think it'll help them with, you know, there's so many uh, kind of early adopter events and stuff like that that are out there. But I think half the time the product team doesn't know exactly who to invite. And, and before the MVP categories were so misaligned and, and not specific enough that now these subcategories or specialties will give them better clues as to who might be interested. Right. So we're going to be talking a little bit about the new .NET 3.0 and 3.5, or just we're going to stick to 3.0 today? No, we can hit on 3.5 as well, because there's definitely, you know, in the WPF and, and possibly WF we might get into space, there's definitely some new stuff in 3.5. I know that uh, you uh, you guys at iDesign are expanding a little bit, recently brought on a new member. Yes, indeed. A big announcement this week is that we have uh, Dino Esposito has joined our ranks at iDesign, so we're very happy about that. I'm always honored to be a part of iDesign with uh, names like Yuval and Michelle, who are great people to work with as well, and just you know, really, uh, really well-known people with a lot of good ideas, and bringing Dino into the mix is just uh, really helping that out. And Mark Michaelis, too, is, is another one of our associates. Got to welcome Dino with a barbecue party. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, that joke just won't die. <laughs> it won't die. But I, I noticed now you have a European arm. <laughs> yeah, We had right. dinner with him at, uh, in Las Vegas at Dev Connection. As soon as we got in the cab, the first thing that came up was uh, barbecue. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> it's, an ice, it's a universal icebreaker with Dino, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so let's start with uh, WPF. Sure. What's the state uh, of it? Well, you know... All the .NET 3.0 technologies kind of have a, a different rate of adoption, that's for sure. WCF is, I'd say, certainly the one that's got the most adoption because it brings the most to the table that can apply to everyone. 
Um, WPF would probably be second, and WF, I would say, third as far as adoption rates. Hmm. And I'd say the main, you know, kind of hesitation that people have with WPF is that at first glance, it's kind of like, oh, well, it's just another UI technology. Why do I really need that? Right. And so you first have to kind of approach it from the perspective of what's different about it, what can it do for me? And when you try to simplify what it is, it really boils down to, well, you can create really cool eye candy. And people, you know, look at that and kind of go, well, is that important, you know? Well, ask really Apple with the iPhone if that's well, important. Well, that's exactly. That's that's kind of my perspective on it is, is, you know, it depends on, it certainly depends on what kind of app you're building. And if you're behind the firewall building, you know, a corporate accounting app that you have a small set of users and it's heads down data entry, then no, you don't need WPF. In fact, WPF is probably going to slow down your development and not necessarily do anything for your users. But in any kind of a competitive scenario, certainly consumer-facing apps or even, you know, a lot of times even corporate apps, there's still competition there in terms of, you know, the, the boss has only got funding for two projects and there's four in, you know, four that are being proposed and yours is one of them. And if the, uh, you know, the, the monkey CEO who can't even figure out how to use his own typewriter sees glitzy stuff on the screen when you demo your app, he's going to go, ooh, cool, let's build that one. So it's hard to really draw that line of when is that eye candy important or not. Do you know the perfect formula for building and managing websites? Follow me here. Zero effort plus Sitefinity CMS equals infinity in website development. That's right. Telerik challenges you to explore its innovative Sitefinity content management system and offers you a chance to win a sleek Zune MP3 player or a Sitefinity license. These cool awards could be yours if you only answer a few easy questions about Telerik Sitefinity CMS. All you have to do is watch five short movies and see how easy it is to build infinitely beautiful websites with zero effort. You'll learn some cool facts about Sitefinity and the effortless creation of websites. So go to www.sitefinity.com and give it a try. It's fun, it's interesting, and it can get you a free license or a free Zoom. Well, what do you think um what do you think the rate of adoption is in terms of business apps with WPF? Uh business well, you, you know, we always have these discussions of what really constitutes a line of business app. Mm. Um and you know, usually it's something that contributes to the core functioning of the business whether it's, you know, it's easy to think of like insurance companies and banks and things like that that have operations floors with, you know, hordes of people sitting at their desk answering phone calls and interacting with an application to get their li- their jobs done. Um, but there's so many support functions and stuff that there's line of business apps for as well. But most of those tend to be, at least in, you know, the current form and the, the current way that people think about building them, it's usually a lot of text boxes, combo boxes, data grids, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And if that's all you're going to do, then WPF really doesn't offer that much right. uh, that, that is going to make your life easier. But the way I kind of try to pose it to people is I look at it, I look at WPF similar to how I also present WCF to uh, customers is that, you know, if, if all you need to do is make a remote call from one app to another, You've got a whole bunch of different options with .NET Remoting and ASP.NET Web Services and MSMQ and raw sockets and so on. But what WCF really gives you is that you can start with the basics and then move on to those advanced features if you find you need them without having to re-architect your application Yeah. because WCF supports such a wide range of functionality. And I kind of present WPF in a similar light that, you know, if, if all you know you need today is some grids and text boxes and combo boxes, well, guess what? You can do that with WPF pretty well, too. Right, in Visual and, Studio 2008. Yeah, and now, you know, to do that stuff, to be honest, it's probably going to be slightly slower than Windows Forms in terms of the, the pure UI layout, just because Visual Studio 2008 designer for WPF is really version 1.0, whereas the Windows Forms one is, you know, really, it didn't really change in 2008, but in 2005, it was basically version 3.0. Yeah. So there's a lot more designer functionality for uh, for Windows Forms development to WPF even today with the released uh, 2008. But still, it's doable for for the you know for the bulk of it. And there are third party tools out there that pick up the slack, right? 
Well, and also, I mean, what I've really kind of gotten into with customers lately is is the fact that you really have to look at how much time do you really spend just laying out the UI compared to all the time spent fleshing out the functionality that's behind that UI. Boy, you said it. You really nailed it there. And it used to be that the UI was the tricky part. Now it's not. It's the it's the architecture. It's the business object layer. It's the data exactly. layer. It's the yeah the service, service layer. Calls, it's, yeah, it's the caching. It's right. yeah, it's all, it's all that stuff. So you know, I was actually guilty. Uh, you know, probably a year or so ago, I was kind of more beating the the bandwagon of oh, I'd really hold off on WPF. You know, at that point, the designer was in pretty raw form. Didn't really know how far along it would come. And I was thinking of things mainly in terms of just the pure, how long does it take me to lay out my UI? Right. It is, you know, significantly slower than Windows Forms for traditional data-bound scenarios. But, um, you know, when you really get down to it, just getting the basic functionality there, getting the controls on the form and stuff, and especially when you start to move into, you know, leveraging what WPF is good for, and that's if you try to start to brand your app and give it a give it a more unique look and you mm-hmm. know some styling and theming and those kinds of things. Yeah. Really to do those right, you need a designer in the mix and you need to to get a either, you know, contract a design firm if if it's not something that's going to be an ongoing thing or actually better yet is to start thinking in terms of trying to have a designer presence if you're cranking out a lot of apps. And it does work. Your- I'm thinking of the interview Richard that we did with Rocky Latka at Mix in Boston last year. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yep. yeah, where he he even showed it on stage, you know, the the collaboration between he and the designer that works with him at Magenic and uh, that it was working out really really well. Yep, definitely. Yeah, I've been having some recent uh email and IM conversations with our friend Dax Pandy about this too cuz he obviously uh spends a lot of time in that space and uh has his Revolutions uh video podcast which he said he's going to start doing again here soon, hopefully, because I was finding that a great resource. And uh, so, you know, if you get a designer in the mix, then you can kind of split off that making it pretty aspect, let the developers focus on just making it work. And it's that making it work part where, you know, you really get bogged down, and that's where most of the effort is spent. So, Mm. you know, if if you just tell someone, well, you know, if you adopt WPF, it's going to take you, I don't know, 50, 50 to 70 percent longer to get a complex data-bound UI laid out. They're going to say, "Well, I'm not going to take a 50 to 75 percent hit in my development timeline." But then, if you really look at it, it's like how much you know how much of your overall development timeline is really spent in UI layout. And it's probably 10 percent or less. Brian, does using WPF in Studio 2008 force you to not write code in your forms behind things, or or, or can you still do that? Oh, you can definitely still do that. Um, I mean, that's one of the things we I'd like to talk about at some point today is I've been working with the uh, Patterns and Practices guys at Microsoft on a project called PRISM is the code name. Uh, it's Composite WPF. And so for people who are familiar with uh, the Composite UI application block out there, it's sort of a, a uh, replacement for CAB, but that's really not a good way to capture it because it's really a more more of a rethinking of how should we do composite applications in WPF. And part of that effort is along the lines of what you just asked, is to say when you start building big, complex applications that you need to not just have, you know, one big giant window with everything in the code behind, uh, how do you go about doing that? So there's not really anything in in WPF. In fact, in some ways it gets worse because... Really? Yeah, because it's XAML. Uh, XAML mm-hmm. is a unique kind of interesting thing because it swings the p- pendulum almost in the wrong direction if you use it too much. Meaning you can you can embed code in it and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Through some of the XAML constructs, most you know, most specifically triggers. Mm-hmm. Uh, triggers are a facility in in XAML and in WPF where you're basically putting event handling directly in the markup, and you yeah. can. You can put a, a trigger that says basically if this property over here changes to this value, I want to go set this, this, and this property on these five things to these values. You know, I remember us doing that in DNR TV and, and having the same uh, reaction. Well, and, yeah, it's one of those things that, it, you know, from one perspective, it's like, wow, that's really cool. I like the fact that it's declarative. It's very, you know, once you get comfortable with the syntax and, and the way they work, it's very easy to say, I can just look at that and through inspection know what it's going to do, and I like that. Yeah. 
but from a unit testing perspective, you can't unit test that really in any decent way. Or just from a separation of of uh, concerns point yeah, of view. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and I'm so, thinking about it on one more layer, which is, you know, I buy into your idea that now we're finally getting WPF controls. So we mm-hmm. don't have to have the the artist, we don't have to have the designer, we don't have to have that visionary UI design. I could still drag out my old Microsoft use, user design guidebook and build myself a conventional uh, form mm-hmm. using WPF. And then sometime later, I want to get the artsy stuff laid in when people need some value in there and so forth. And so now I'm thinking... How am I going to cripple myself from doing that if I if I approach it this way? Am I going to have the right things available on that form? Am I going to have the right information available to pull things together so that I can do that new UI later on? Well, and, and that's where I think they did a really good job with the architecture of WPF because it's it's pretty hard to put yourself into a box where you can't do that stuff later on. So I think um, we've got it. We finally at the level of abstraction that gives us enough flexibility. The big thing is I'm thinking that cool new control, that fancy thing I'm going to buy from some third party that that the CTO got hooked on, the spinny dial-y, and it tells me everything I need to know control, is going to need so much data to make it work that I'm going to have mm-hmm. to rebuild the page anyway, rebuild that whole form anyway to pull the data together that the control needs. Uh, not necessarily. I, I'm, like, what kind of data are you thinking of there? I'm... I'm purely blue skying here, guys, so I don't know oh, okay. for sure what the real problem is going to be. And I'm and I'm thinking to the point that XAML will let me overcome that. That if I do need additional elements, that I do need an additional triggering event. If to keep if it gets to the point where I'm loading too much data and I need to have some kind of event to go fetch more information on the fly, all of that's in XAML. But you know, and I think Brian's point was that's just one way to do it. And just because you can do it in XAML doesn't mean that you should, as opposed to putting it in, in another place. And I think that's what the composite WPF block is, one of the things that it's trying to address. Well, actually, we're, we're kind of mixing a few things there. So one thing is that, along Richard's point, is that when you start talking third-party controls or custom controls that you know your development organization might write, your ability to change its appearance and, and make it really custom later on is completely dictated by how much you you think about that scenario ahead of time. So there's different ways yeah. to put together custom controls in WPF, and some of those facilitate this customization, which is done through things called templates, and other ones completely block it. So, for example, user controls are one of those that, you know, everyone's familiar with the concept from either ASP.NET or Windows Forms. WPF has the same thing. So a natural, you know, first thought when you go to create a custom control is, hey, I'll just slap it together as a, as a user control, and I'll put in the XAML definition for that user control what it's going to look like, and I'll put some behavior in the code behind, and then that thing's all packaged and reusable. But if you go down that path, you pretty uh, quickly can run into problems because you can't template user controls. Uh, so you couldn't customize that with a control template after the fact. You mm. also can't really inherit from it and add behavior to it later on because mm. you can't inherit XAML, really. XAML gets compiled into BAML, binary application markup language in your assembly, and they don't really support any way to then inherit that declarative aspect of your of your uh, code. But wait a minute. Now, you say you can't inherit the declarative aspect of it, meaning I can understand why, you know, in a text editor how that wouldn't work. But but as an object, it's not they're, – they're, they're not sealed objects, are they? Sealed well, they're classes? Not, but- it actually it gets into the way they compile uh, WPF XAML is that they don't actually fully compile the XAML. They actually, certain portions of the XAML get split out and turned into C-sharp code at compile time and then compiled to IL, but other parts of it just get compiled to what's called BAML, binary application markup language, and stuck into the assembly as a resource. So long story short, when you create a user control, that that's it. You can't, yeah, you can't use that as a base it, class. Right, it is what it is. So if you want to facilitate inheritance and control templating, then you have to go with what's just called a custom control, which is kind of ambiguous, but that basically says you're going to derive from either one of the built-in controls in the in the uh, framework or you're going to derive from the control base class and you're going to do it all in code. Well, that makes sense cuz that's just like that's just like uh ASP.NET has the same 
issue. Yeah, it's it's very similar to ASP.NET. The one the one difference there, I said all in code, but that's a little misleading because you can still declare. Basically, controls have a default template, and that's that's kind of the right way to do this. Is you still declare kind of the static layout through XAML, but you don't do it in the user control way where it's XAML and code behind. You define that XAML declarative aspect as a resource, and then you load that as the default template for the control programmatically. So you can still do, you can still facilitate having a designer, you know, like using expression blend or something, come up with what does that control look like and all the fancy animated effects that may be associated with it as the default look and feel of that control. So they could do all that in blend, do it as XAML and hand it over to you, but they would hand it over as a resource that you would programmatically load in the construction of your custom control. And then, then, you know, someone using your control would be able to say, yeah, I don't like the way that looks. I'm going to completely change it and provide my own template. And they'd be able to do that as well through XAML. Tell me a little bit more about Prism and um, maybe some of the patterns that it incorporates. Sure. Well, we're just in the beginning stages of it right now. Um, I'm basically, I'm working with the team. Glenn Block is the, the uh, product planner for that. And uh, some of the other folks on the team there, Francis uh, Chung and, and Blaine Westell, and a lot of the same players that are in uh, Web Client Software Factory, Smart Client Software Factory, and the other products that uh, Patterns and Practices has been putting out for a while. Yeah, this is, isn't this part of that sort of sequence before Composite uh, WPF? Wasn't it that wasn't it Acropolis? Well, yeah, there is a lot of history leading up to this. So, I mean, kind of back in the annals of time of, of patterns and practices, one of the first ones I got involved with was the uh, user interface process block, which was really more for ASP.NET apps. Mm, right. But it was really a MVC model view controller um, implementation for ASP.NET that was mainly focused on page-to-page navigation. And then that sort of led to, for the smart client space, the... Uh, Composite UI application block, or CAB as it's called for short, and then CAB led to the Smart Client Software Factory, which basically, you know, in a nutshell, SCSF or the Smart Client Software Factory made CAB usable uh, in terms of providing additional guidance, reference implementation, stuff like that, and some additional application blocks. And then there was Web Client Software Factory, which was an analogy or a similar thing for the web space. And then somewhere in there, you know, part of the Charter, at least my my understanding of the Charter of Patterns and Practices in the big scheme of things is, you know, they're supposed to gather best practices and stuff from the way people are using the framework and the tools out in the field, put that out as guidance so everyone can kind of do the best practices and then try to roll some of that back into the framework by having the product teams, you know, merge the good ideas back into the framework uh, for the long term. And so Acropolis that you mentioned was was sort of an effort in that direction that CAB was very popular for the for the Windows form space for large enterprise apps, but it had certain shortcomings. Um, and so Acropolis, part of Acropolis Charter was to basically sort of bring some of those ideas for building composite applications uh, for WPF. And part of the problem for Acropolis was their their scope kind of went out of control. They went from just being WPF to being WPF and WinForms, and it wasn't just about composite. They were also going to be an application framework along the lines of what MSC used to be, and they kept taking a lot of input, and uh, I think they just took and listened to too much input and kept saying, yeah, we can do that, we can do that, we can do that, and and then Hmm. all of a sudden it was kind of like, well, we could do all that, but we'll ship sometime next decade. And uh, and so for now, my understanding of it is, is Acropolis is kind of on hold. Um, they are working on kind of what comes next, but none of that has been really announced yet. Hmm. And so in the interim, basically patterns and practices came along and said, well, we can sort of step back in this void and come up with a composite solution for WPF. Which is really just taking a smaller bite of the Acropolis pie and saying, well, let's figure exactly. this out and... Maybe someday we'll be able to integrate that back into the bigger picture that Acropolis was trying to get to. Right. Exactly. So, so basically, composite, you know, Prism or composite WPF uh, is really just focusing on the composite construction. Uh, you know, the idea is for a large team, and, and some of the key spaces that this fits in is if you have a distributed team, uh, you have, you know, or a large team that's kind of composed of smaller teams that are going to work mostly independent to bring together a big, complex UI application, 
then you can't afford to have that one big form, you know, with 10 different panels in it, all doing different things, all being built by different people and have the spaghetti code that results from trying to make that all work together. So you start to decompose the application into smaller modular parts and, and being able to build and test those modular parts on their own and then bring them together into a single composite application. And so that's, that's basically yeah. what composite WPF is all about is to provide the initial plans uh, are not, you know, rock solid yet, but the idea is at a minimum, uh, they will ship some guidance, meaning, you know, documentation and probably a reference implementation is the term they use, which is basically a fairly complicated, uh, but semi real world sample application. So not just a hello world, you know, with a couple of buttons on it, something that represents a real, real world scenario for the kinds of domains where you would want to do a composite app but trying to keep it from getting so complex that you get lost in the noise of the scenario and, and don't see the construction of the of where composite WPF is helping you out. Well, and it does. I do get the sense that, once again, Microsoft has given us enough rope to hang ourselves with, and there's enough different ways to try and solve this problem that you're sure to pick the one that makes sense to you first and then find out later it was the wrong way. And that backs into your whole thought about you shouldn't do everything in XAML. Well, and that, this is where, you know, I said an oversimplification of what it is, is, is it's cab for WPF, but it's not that for exactly the reason you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the big complaints against cab was that cab really became an all or nothing prospect. Right. You had to design your app from scratch to be a cab app, or it was pretty much game over. You couldn't really just bring in little aspects of cab. You had to buy and into it from the start. So that's definitely, you know, a key scenario for composite WPF is to say, we want to support you know, first off, being able to, to uh, we're calling it a brownfield scenario, being able to bring aspects of composite WPF into an existing app. You know, you just mentioned, you just mentioned something brownfield, which I just learned this parlance from Keith, please. And I guess it's emanating from out west. Well, somewhere. he works a lot with patterns and practices. Too, right. So, so the greenfield application is like blank, a blank slate. It's a green pasture, right? Is that the whole idea? Right. Exactly. And a brownfield has some support structure in it. It's sort of like a, uh, a template or, or, or cogen or some it's kind It's brown. Of... It's got poop on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the cows have been grazing. Yes. Well, it, well but it's, it's interesting in the WPF context to talk about that because, you know, first off, what people think about in that case is they think, oh, that means I can take my Windows Forms app and use composite WPF to somehow get me into the WPF space. And that's not... That's not the brownfield we're talking about here. Right. Uh, it's really more that, you know, for these kinds of apps, often people start out, they get started on an app, and maybe a brand new app, so it may start as a greenfield app, but they don't start out, you know, with composite WPF from day one. And then they get, you know, two, two to six months into the project, and they go, ooh, you know what, this is getting really tangled and convoluted and messy, and we want to we want to hire this offshore team to help us, or, you know, we want to hand some of this off to another team, and they start to get into that space where composite would make sense, but they've already got a lot of work done. Either that or the other kind of brownfield scenario we do want to support is, you know, it may be an existing Windows Forms app. We're not talking about reusing the UI necessarily, but hopefully if that, that application was uh, properly architected in the first place, there's a lot of business logic and services and things behind the scenes that could be reused in the context of a WPF app. Does WPF facilitate the use of any presentation patterns? That's that's a good question. That's another big part of this that we're you know spending a lot of time discussing is there's you know there's so so much uh, discussion and ideas out there about model view controller, model view presenter. There's a new one called model view view model, which I hate the term oh for, but God. it's actually when you when you dig into it, it's actually basically. You can look at it as a refinement of either model view presenter or, or model view controller that aligns well with the constructs of WPF. It actually was kind of created by the uh, the expressions team because you know a lot of people don't realize that the the stereo or you know the kind of I forget the right word, but a, a good example of a complex composite WPF app that everyone can look and, and play with is expression. Right. Because expression blend, expression design, expression, uh, all the four expression products, they're all one shell, and they have composite views being loaded into them. Hmm. And so they already had to uh, basically blaze a lot of this trail themselves. So we've been working with uh, you know, some of the members from that team 
to get some of their lessons learned. And this model view view model is something that came out of that, of, of the way that they kind of said, well, you know, the traditional definition of model view controller doesn't really work for us. Model view presenter doesn't really work for us. So they they kind of refined it into this model view view model thing. It sounds to me very palindromic, like the the view is the the views can talk to each other. Is that the way it seems? Well, what it really boils down to is the view model portion of it is just, I think of it as a chunk of state. If, if you think about, you know, the kind of state that a UI, that the UI elements themselves care about, you may have coupling between like a checkbox and the, and, and the text being, you know, whether any text is in a, uh, in a text box to say whether a checkbox is enabled or something like that. So there's all this state that's associated with chunks of your UI that maybe don't map one for one to things in your domain model, in your actual model part of all these model uh, patterns. And so the view model is just kind of an extraction. It's something that sits in between the view and the actual domain model that more closely maps to the individual pieces of state you need for the view itself. All right. So So it really describes three things, the model, the view, and the view model. Right. Okay. I understand now. So it's four yeah. letters, but three concepts. Yeah, they really need yeah, commas exactly. in there or something. <laughs> well, and, and our discussions of it uh, with the PNP guys, you know, what we really said is there's still actually, you may actually still need a controller and or a presenter to, to really do it right. Mm. So it really just addresses the interactions between those three parts, um, but there's certain portions of your logic and behavior that you still may want to factor out to either a presenter or a controller as well. Now, do we really want to go take a minute here and define the patterns a bit better, the model view controller, model view hurt. presenter? It couldn't hurt. Yeah, I, I, you know what? It's just good to set the ground for everybody on this. Sure, I'll, I'll do my best attempt. I mean, the hardest thing about talking about these is, you know, for any one of these patterns, you can find 12 different definitions of it. Absolutely. Yeah, and they're very so abstract. Let's, we're going to get the Brian Noyes definition today. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No so, pressure. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so what's a model? Well, what's, oh, so you start with the hard one. (laughs) (laughs) We all know what the view is. The model is the hardest one to define because it's the the most abstract part. It's basically everything other than those other things. (laughs) I love it. it. It's basically, you know, it's some combination of your actual objects, your business objects, if you will, the, the actual, you know, state entities type stuff, the data access. Uh, services that you're calling, business logic that drives those objects. It, it could be any combination of those things. So, so it's really that everything stuff. that, yeah, it's pretty much everything that sits behind the view that is not directly interacting with the view in some way. Okay. Um, the view part of it is basically what you see on the screen. And, and the, one of the variations between these different patterns is how much smarts does that view have? So the view is fairly, the view is the easiest to define because it's just usually it ties down to whatever UI technology you're using, it's those renderable things. So in WPF, it's things that derive from UI elements or control at a higher level. In ASP.NET, it's, you know, controls and pages and so on. And in Windows Forms, it's the windows and controls themselves. Mm. So that's the view definition itself. Um, and then where the, the controller or presenter or view model come in, is to say, you know, where does the logic go? And what is the nature of that logic? So let's start with MVC. Um, The model, again, is is this mushy part. It's everything else. The view is what I just said. The controller uh, depends kind of on which UI framework you're talking about. So since we're talking about WPF, I'll focus there because MVC in an ASP.NET context kind of takes on a little bit different meaning Mm. because of the stateless nature of the web versus the stateful nature of a a smart client app. Mm -hmm. So in a smart client app, usually when people talk about controller, uh, there's usually sort of one controller that sort of coordinates all the activity of the app, or maybe there's several controllers where you sort of subdivide the responsibility a little bit. But there's not as much a one-to-one mapping between a single view and a single controller. So usually a controller spans multiple views. Uh, it may dictate when a given view is presented. So, you know, a kind of a classic pattern people are used to is a wizard. And so a controller in a wizard scenario is the one that drives the, the uh, view transitions. So what, what page is going to be shown 
and what are the available paths of navigation between those views. Um, and then it also will usually kind of be the, the bridge into the model. But this is where some of the variations come in. So sometimes when you see model view control or drawn up, you see an arrow directly between the view and the model um, and between the view and the controller. So it's kind of a triangle. Hmm. Other times you see the, uh, the view only talking to the controller and the controller only talking to the model. But if it's drawn that way, it's really more a model view presenter type of pattern. So when you see model view presenter, the difference between presenter and controller I would say one of the main distinctions there is that usually a presenter has kind of a one-to-one mapping with a view. So when you construct a view, you have a presenter, and it's almost more just a one step beyond code behind to try and extract out the logic that goes with the view, but have that logic have sort of no knowledge of exactly how it's being put on the screen. Hmm. So, you know, in in your code behind, you'll very often be directly accessing uh, references to text boxes, combo boxes, and so on. Uh, whereas the logic that would sit in a presenter would more say something like, you know, display company name and have no idea whether that's going to be a bitmap logo or whether it's going to be, a, you know, a status bar text element or put into a text box. So you try to abstract out exactly what the, the view definition is uh, from the logic that drives passing data to and from the view. And so those presenters are usually more focused on that, getting data in, getting data out, and Typically, you're talking about the more persistable forms of data, not just things like a checkbox state. Okay. Um, and so you'll also get variations where you're doing model view presenter, so you've got this one-to-one mapping between views and presenters, but then you may also have a controller. So like when you use the, the uh, composite UI application block and, and smart client software factory, they they drive you in the direction of doing a model view presenter for your individual views, but then you have this thing called a work item controller, which is more, there's different kinds of controllers as well, so it's more an application controller uh, that does this coordination between multiple views. Do using any of these patterns, these presentation patterns, make it easier or more difficult to test the UI separate from the rest of it, to test the view? Yeah, and that's probably the main point behind doing a lot of this. I mean, part of it is just separation of concerns and trying to force you to think about getting that logic out of the view itself and not ending up with those, you know, nasty old uh, Windows forms or before that, you know, hate to hate to categorize as the VB6 style app, but, you know, there's been plenty of examples of those out there where you just True. build and build and build and next thing you know, you just have this horrendous pile of, Inter- Crap. Interwoven code, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've built and yourself a legacy app. <laughs> Congratulations. Well, and it's certainly not isolated to VB6. I mean, I've seen plenty of those in MSC and uh, and Windows Forms as well. But, yeah. you know, so the separation of concerns of just adopting one of those patterns and saying, I'm going to constantly think about moving the logic out to this separable thing so that I don't end up with that spaghetti code, mm-hmm. there's just some implicit benefit in doing that. But really the reason that drives people to do it is the testability. Once you've got it separate, now it's more unit testable, and that's one of the main goals of doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Now, another reason, like the model view, view model thing, you know, part of the mo- motivation there is just like you have sort of a, and you know, people say the word impedance mismatch between the database and your object model. Mm. You sort of have a similar impedance mismatch between the UI and your your domain model or your object model, because you know the UI has all these granular bits of state for checkboxes and things like that that may not map one to one onto your business objects. And that's where I said before the kind of the role of the view model portion of model view view model is to solve that impedance mismatch and to give you an object that maps more directly to what you want to data bind specifically in your UI. Do you, um, in terms of your experience with adoption, is is anybody going there with uh, implementing these patterns in WPF? Does, does WPF make it easy to do this stuff or does it is it a challenge? Um, I wouldn't say it's any easier or harder to do this in WPF because no. you have a similar... Okay. You have a similar, you know, separation in terms of, well, with Windows Forms, it was all code, whether it was the designer-generated code or, you know, the code you wrote for putting together your form. Right. It was all already in a code construct, but you already sort of had 
the same separation that the designer generated code, at least with .NET 2.0, was in that separate .designer.cs file. Right. And so you can make analogies of, you know, the XAML is like your designer.cs file. It's that separate stuff that's purely declarative. Here's what my UI looks like. As long as you stay away from some of those constructs, like you know, triggers that are doing too fancy of stuff, because uh, you know that's that's where the 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 gray lines come in here, and where you can get yourself in trouble. Is you you try to make your view part too smart, and even though you say you're doing model view presenter or model view controller, you're starting starting to uh, you know deviate from the reasons you went in that direction in the first yeah. place. Yeah. But because you have the separation of declarative markup, that's the static aspects, the static declaration of the view, and then the code behind, you know, the code behind itself could almost be viewed as a presenter, but it's not separated quite enough because it has direct access through references to all those UI elements. And it's just too easy to start, you know, directly manipulating those instead of abstracting out, you know, what are the patterns of data coming and going from the UI that I'm really trying to address. Hey, Brian, you know, I just asked Adam Nathan this question uh, a few days ago, and maybe you could answer it the other way. I looked at Silverlight and said, maybe this is a way to ease WPF adoption by putting it back over on the web where people are still having serious UI concerns, because let's face it, Windows Forms works, and also narrowing the scope of the problem down a bit. What Do you do you see it that way? Do you think that Silverlight is like a way to back into WPF? I think it's going to kind of turn out that way. I you know, I mentioned this in the uh, the WPF panel we did at DevReach that when when Silverlight was first being announced and stuff, a lot of the marketing pitch was that oh, you can leverage your WPF skills as you adopt Silverlight. But the truth mm-hmm. is, not many people have those yet. So because of more the you know the broad reach of the web and and a lot of the hype around Silverlight and the slow adoption of WPF, I think in a lot of cases the way people are going to get into WPF is they're going to start doing Silverlight. They're going to get used to XAML programming and all the constructs that are there in Silverlight, and then they're going to all of a sudden realize, you know what, most of this is applicable to WPF as well, so I can start building smart client apps the same way. Do you think there will be any bad habits learned from doing Silverlight that uh, when you go to WPF, maybe there's a better way to do something and still we're thinking the Silverlight way? Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's still, you know, the, the difference of the web world versus the smart client world and the statefulness of it. I mean, Silverlight kind of bridges that gap a little bit in that as long as you have that page up and running in the browser, it's sort of a stateful smart client thing in the browser Yeah, and, and, you know, maintain state and stuff. But as soon as you do a page transition, you've lost all that state. I think of that problem is the same that you have uh, with the compact framework. You know, if you start, if you ease your way into .NET programming through the compact framework, you get used to doing things the hard way, the long way, because you don't have the full API available to you. And then when you get into VBNet or C Sharp on the desktop, now all of a sudden you have those habits of, of you know, doing your own serialization, for example, you know, things like that I've seen just carry over. It's a classic problem when, as you know, as languages get more and more uh, sophisticated and uh, developers don't always take advantage of all the tools that are there before them. Yeah, but I mean, I think the one thing that people can leverage their skills with, you know, the, the XAML programming model, definitely. The things that you put in your XAML are at least the basic constructs are going to look exactly the same from a syntax perspective. They're actually, you know, different implementations of those classes behind the scenes, but they're going to look and behave pretty much the same. There's, you know, it's Silverlight is definitely a restricted subset of what you'd be able to do in WPF. But some of the, from a design perspective, you know, your your XAML code is still running on the client in Silverlight. So things that you wouldn't want to do if it was running on the server from a resource consumption perspective, you can take more of the smart client attitude there that, well, this is running on the client. I'm trying to leverage those client-side resources so I can do more fancy stuff there. I foresee people, you know, constructing their own complex um, visual types the way they have to do in Silverlight when in WPF there might be already something there that they can just declare as a single thing, that kind of stuff. Well, I think it's just a word of warning, I think. Yeah, I think probably just the one thing that, you know, along the lines of what we were talking about before, Hmm. there's certainly going to be more of a tendency, I think, in the Silverlight world to do things like leverage the XAML and do more things and triggers and stuff like that. Yeah, okay. Um, And that's maybe, you know, a bit of an anti-pattern when you come to the smart client world from a testability perspective. 
All right, look, we got about 15 minutes left, and uh, we still haven't talked about workflow, and I know you wanted to, so so let's do that. And specifically, why has workflow taken so long to catch on? I think a lot of it just has to do with, part of it is people haven't figured out what workflow is or or whether they need it. Hmm. Um, Part of it is if they think they need it and they start to look at it, it's hard to get their head around. And if they look at it in detail, then they suddenly find that what's there is not quite as much as what they expected. I think so. Kind of breaking those down, the the uh, you know whether they need it or not, people have been doing workflow and applications for a long time. Let's face it, but it's you know it hasn't been through a workflow technology necessarily. Right. And so it's it's been in the form of business logic that you know someone has to code up and make sure that it executes in the right order and that all the rules are implemented correctly and so mm-hmm. on. But effectively, it's enforcing a, a business process or a mm-hmm. workflow. Mm-hmm. Um, so until someone thinks about breaking those things out as a separate sort of declarative workflow definition, as opposed to just saying, well, that's just all forms of business logic, then they don't even really think they need a, a, a workflow technology. Um, you know, if they hear about Windows Workflow, then they say, hmm, yeah, actually, we're doing a lot of that stuff. Maybe that would help us. And so they start to approach it. And what I find is hardest for people about adopting Workflow is that it's really a different thought process, mm. uh, mainly in terms of the way your workflows execute, um, some of the overhead associated with the way they execute. You know, mm. you certainly give up some performance uh, because there's a lot of layers of abstraction there helping you out from a design and maintainability perspective. But if you're looking for raw performance, that's probably not the direction to go. If you're writing your own SMTP or POP3 server, probably not a good idea. Right. Something that's got to run really fast. Exactly. Or, you know, I worked with a customer that was doing medical image processing, and they said, you know, we went in and they were like, we heard about this workflow thing, and it sounds really promising to us because one of our biggest problems is that We've got these horrendously complex algorithms that have, you know, dozens or hundreds of, of individual little algorithms that they invoke on the image to come up with an end product and figuring out all the branching and flow between these individual subroutines basically is, is a nightmare for maintenance. It's like, okay, given that perspective, I could see where the graphic visualization that a workflow definition gives you might be really useful. And then they said, yeah. But really, our biggest problem is performance. It's because all those little subroutines are being called over and over and over again for every single pixel in the image, and it's our end-to-end processing time that's our biggest problem. And then it immediately is like, well, kind of game over then, because doing all those subroutine calls as workflow activity calls is going to yeah. be a big performance impact. Yeah. And then I would say the the last thing I touched on there as far as adoption slowness is that people hear about workflow and, you know, to simplify it, I would say what they think they're going to get, you know, they hear workflow, part of the framework, it's free, and they think they're going to get BizTalk Server for free. It's kind of right. where they end up coming from. So, you know, workflow, Windows Workflow is kind of a low-level SDK developer technology. Um, but people come into it thinking they're going to be able to have business analysts define their workflows, that they're going to have, uh, be able to put it into production and have all kinds of management tools and operations insight into what workflows are executing and all that kind of stuff. And there's certainly facilities for all that stuff in workflow. There's the ability to rehost a designer so that so that a you know you could write an application that a business analyst could define a workflow, but they don't give you one out of the box. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. You can do that, but you have to write it. Exactly. And same thing with the operations management. They've got great tracking facilities built into Windows Workflow where it's going to pump you know, it's it's customizable. It, they have tracking profiles where you can pump all kinds of stuff into the database about every single activity that's executing, what workflows have completed, aborted, and so on. They've got the facilities to jam all that stuff into a database for you, but they don't have any tools to harvest it. So, you know, if you want that insight for operations, you've got it. You've just got to write the tools to present it in some way that makes sense to your business. So those are the things that people come into and are like, cool, it's got all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, at a very low level, it's got all this stuff enterprise ready scalable all these things but there's some work to do to you know build a production ready application with it now i was talking to sahil malik um about BizTalk and workflow mm-hmm. and uh and i brought this up a comment he made to me which maybe richard can help me with 
uh, or you too, uh, which which was that workflow doesn't have orchestration. And Aaron Sconard said, oh, yes, it does. But I think maybe our definition of orchestration was a little bit different. The the orchestration Sahil is talking about is the sort of high-level uh, tools that are built into BizTalk to not just the workflow part of it, but the actual orchestration part of it. Richard, do you know what he's talking about, or should we ask him? I think we got to ask him. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think there's subtle distinctions in people's mind about what's an orchestration versus a workflow. Mm. Yeah, uh, but I mean, I tend to agree with Sahil. This gets back to that whole, is it, workflow's not BizTalk. Well, BizTalk yes. is an orchestration engine. Well, right, exactly. but what does and, that and, mean? And that's what I want to flesh out. Maybe we'll talk to him about that. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, you know, the the abstraction level in BizTalk when you're defining a, an orchestration is certainly a notch higher than in workflow. It's It's pretty hard to define any meaningful Windows workflow workflow without writing some code. Whereas in BizTalk, hmm. you almost never have to write code if you're putting together an orchestration. Because you have because all those got, adapters there. Well, exactly. It, it, the 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 you know kind of the level of abstraction of the what they call shapes in in BizTalk, which are called activities in Workflow. They're they're for a specific task of some function that BizTalk supports. So it's more a hookup. You put this thing on your diagram and you set a couple of properties and you're done. Whereas the stuff that ships out of the box with Windows Workflow is more like they pretty much directly map the keywords in programming languages. It's if blocks and mm. wild loops and mm. things like that that have no specific business context. Mm. So you have to build on top of that to put some, you know, they, you usually have to write some code to say exactly what are you ifing on or whiling on and so on. Or you have to write custom activities. Hopefully you have existing code that you're now trying to manage and control. Well, exactly. And where you really end up when you adopt workflow is you very quickly start writing custom activities that map to your domain to the specific steps in your processes that, you know, you can just drag and drop on a diagram, set a few properties, and it's ready to go. And you've written that code once as a reusable activity that does a specific task. Right. So it's just that, you know, BizTalk really ships with a lot of those already pre-built for you for the functions that BizTalk supports with respect to processing messages. So really, workflow is still at 1.0. Yeah, I would. Yeah, even though there's, uh, you know, there's some new stuff in 3.5, and it's important stuff too. It's it really boils down to at the pure workflow level, it's two new activities: a send activity and a receive activity, and it basically gives you the ability to make full-blown WCF calls with, you know, all the uh, features that that supports for service operations, making those in and out of workflows. But otherwise, everything else about workflow is pretty much unchanged from what, you know, shipped in 3.0. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what comes next as it starts to mature. And plus, I think, you know, the biggest thing I've seen with workflow more than anything else is that Microsoft's adopting it heavily internally. Absolutely. I mean, each server already has going to use it. I mean, all these different products are going to use it. It's got to get better. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a case of, uh, you know, them dogfooding their own product because they have have adopted it internally. They've shipped products on it already. Speech servers one I'm aware of. You know, they're definitely the next version of BizTalk. You talked about this some with uh, Aaron Sconard a few shows ago that, uh, you know, what the next version of BizTalk is going to look like is, is mostly NDA at this point. Um, but it's it's basically, you know, they're kind of, it's no longer this, this big wall that this is a BizTalk server installation. They're kind of taking some of those features and moving them over. Aaron talked about, you know, the ability to monitor WCF service calls with the business activity monitoring and some of, you know, replacing the orchestration engine with Windows Workflow. So there's more of a combining of the worlds of WCF, WF, and BizTalk into one world where it's not an all-or-nothing thing either. You can kind of take bits and parts of it. Um, what it's going to look like licensing-wise, who knows? But... uh that's kind of where things are going is that definitely the orchestration engine of BizTalk as it is today goes away and gets replaced with workflow. Um, you know, it sounds like you should be able to define a workflow, uh, a Windows workflow like you would today, and then choose whether you're going to host it in BizTalk or in a custom application. So it's kind of more of a plug-and-play model as far as workflows go. Um, but there's, you know, less of a distinct line there between what is BizTalk, what is workflow, what is WCF, and you know, where do those integrate with each other? Well, uh, what do you, you, you obviously are very uh, excited about the future. We haven't even talked about WCF, which is, I guess, 
a good sign for WCF. <laughs> and it's just yeah, so they, good. They really did do a good job. I mean, we do a ton of work with WCF at iDesign. You know, we do mostly consulting and training, and a lot of that is along the lines of distributed systems and, and WCF. And it's, it's one of those things that's it's definitely a very complex framework because it's so capable. You know, you, you can't get, take uh, flexibility without some complexity. But um, just in terms of, you know, I, I give people just kind of a rough benchmark that we used to do very similar engagements with customers with enterprise services. And when we would go through a standard uh, week with them, we'd get maybe one vertical slice put together showing them how to tie things together and doing a very similar application, you know, very similar process. We usually get through uh, two or three, sometimes even four vertical slices of their architecture with WC. Yeah, once you get the skills in place, it's just so much more productive, uh, so much more capable for addressing complex scenarios. Just the stuff that Jubal showed on DNR TV a, a while back it was two episodes, two hours worth. And I feel like I could pretty much do 90% of the stuff I need to do with those two hours. Yep. It's pretty yeah, amazing. For, I mean, especially when people approach it from what they're currently doing with like ASP.NET Web Services or right. .NET Remoting. Right. It's just that... You know, most of the complexity of WPS or WCF comes in in that it does those things really simply. Mm. And then when you start introducing those nasty little words like interoperability mm. and, you know, things like that. Certificates. Guess what? It does those too, <laughs> but as soon as you go there, it does get complex. But yeah. that's because it's a com- complex world. Sure. The complexity is under the hood. Yep. All right, Brian. It's been a great talk as usual. It's always good to talk to you. Yep. Uh, thanks for having me on. I guess we're going to see you next in uh, Orlando. Yes, uh, Dev Connection. Well, Summit too. I guess we'll at least us here. Yeah, the MVP we'll be, Summit. Uh, MVP Summit. Yep. Um, and I did want to make a kind of a quick one-time offer, if I could. Sure. Uh, we do have speaking of WCF, we have a great WCF uh, resource CD at iDesign, and so okay. kind of one week from when this show airs, just because we can't handle too much volume. If listeners can uh, visit our site at iDesign.net, there's a link to get that free resource CD. And uh, go ahead and send the, you know, click the link, send the email, and you'll get this uh, great set of uh, resources for doing WCF development. Excellent. Can't wait. Thanks, Brian. We'll talk to you later. Okay. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a van by the FCC, yes, I'm a dog.